The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You're late. You're lying. What did you just say to me? You're well aware we landed two hours before we planned to, with all the goods you sent us after intact, ready to roll. It's your decision to get touchy, say we're late. It means you're looking to put us on the defensive right up front, which means something's gone wrong. It didn't go wrong on our end, so why don't we start again with you telling us what's up? You're later than I'd like. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. It's no deal. That ain't fair. Crime and politics, little girl. Situation is always fluid. It doesn't have to go this way. You know you can still unload those goods, so I can't help thinking there's something else at work here. What were you in the war? A big war you failed to win. You were a sergeant, yeah? Sergeant Malcolm Reynolds. Balls and bayonets brigade. Big, tough veteran. Now you got yourself a ship and you're a captain. Only I think you're still a sergeant, see? Still a soldier. Man of honor in a den of thieves. Well, this is my goddamn den. And I don't like the way you look down on me. I'm above you. Better than. Businessman, see? Roots in the community. You're just a scavenger. Maybe I'm not a fancy gentleman like you with your very fine hat. But I do business. We're here for business. Try one of the border planets. They're a lot more desperate there. Of course, they might kill you. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 8th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to our show on this fine August 8th in London, Ontario. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you'd like to join in on the conversation. Or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org to let us know what you'd like to hear about and what you think about the show, as one of our listeners did last week, and we'll be getting to that in a moment. Also on the show today, in the second half of the show, we'll be talking about sophism's choices and other economic fallacies, which was actually precipitated by the first half of this show in terms of a letter I got from last week. But first, of course, Robert Vaughn is away off on vacation for a few weeks, as he is around this time each year, which means that I'll be sailing the ship to the right on my own for most of the next three or four broadcasts. After which I'm sure Robert will return with news of all the exciting things he did while he was away. So first, uh, I'm going to use the summer months. I, I had an interesting idea of how to use the August months because it's kind of a downtime in a lot of ways. It's really quiet around the news uh, around the university here, isn't it, Ed? <laughs> He's nodding. First, however, we received a, we received a very interesting feedback item from a first-time listener to the show, and his letter just opened the proverbial can of worms, if you, if you know what I mean, on so much of what we talk about on this show. 
In fact, it couldn't have come at a better time, especially since I was planning to use Robert's temporary absence in the holiday summer months as an opportunity to review and revisit many of those basic principles and concepts that we talk about a lot on this show, those concepts that are necessary to a free and prosperous economy and society, which seems ever more and more elusive to some people. So I'd like to thank yet another Robert who took the time to email us, just like you can do at any time, again, at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And Robert's letter represents a viewpoint that I hear from a lot of people, either in whole or in part, and perhaps accounts for why so many people choose to be non-participants in our electoral process. Maybe this is one of the reasons. I don't know which would be the only logical course open to the point of view being expressed, I'm thinking. And here's a letter, and uh, this has got enough in it to keep us going for a while, and it begins, Good morning. And this was ri- we received this, by the way, on the Friday morning after last week's show. I happened to be in the London area on Thursday and heard part of your radio program on capitalism. I'm not familiar with either of you or the program itself, so I wasn't sure if the dialogue was somewhat sarcastic or entirely deadpan. It seemed to me, however, that your views on capitalism were fairly elevated and beyond inspection. You indicated that communism didn't work, which it didn't, and something to the effect that true capitalism has never been achieved due to government intervention of socialist ideas and program programs. I say get out of your lofty capitalist tower and understand that capitalism in its purest form won't work either. It's an ideal that can never be achieved, as was Marxism, due to the destructive influence of mankind. As a colony of people on this planet, we are inherently too corrupt to allow any of these ideal-isms to mature properly. Your comparison of two companies putting out the same product, one succeeding, one failing, due to one having a better cost management, would quickly disintegrate to both companies racing to the bottom of the minimum wage available to their employees to garner maximum profit. While this would sustain the capitalistic ideal, it's morally objectionable, and given enough imbalance, would see revolt. Don't get me wrong. I'm not an advocate of big government. Big Brother watching over us or bailing out the company that's failing or providing too many social programs for special needs people. Funding for the Society of Cross-Eyed Stutterers of Canada drives me crazy. But we need the antagonist to balance out the protagonist. It still won't work, mind you. Bureaucrats taking kickbacks from lobbyists, collusion on the part of major banks and oil companies, wasteful spending by governments in various departments and on too many social programs, Tax evasion by the public while maintaining the public outcry of, quote, we need more, insert social program here. It's all effed. We're all effed. Just like we'd be if we had pure capitalism. And I should point out, I'm not doing the censoring. He wrote it that way. So, E-F-F-E-D. I did enjoy the program, concludes Robert, in a seething type of manner. It certainly was thought-provoking. The irony of your radio program being on public radio on a station whose moniker is You're a Cure for Corporate Radio did not go unnoticed. Kind regards, Robert. That was a great letter, Robert. Thanks for your feedback on that. Uh, You know, you've opened a door to a host of related issues. 
that really serve as a great way for me to start my Just Right Summer project, getting back to and reviewing some of the basics, the principles involved behind almost every one of your comments and observations. This is the show you should be tuning in if all of this stuff interests you, because I think you'll find a lot of your concerns being discussed on this show. But I think you've put the heart before the course, as was the theme of a Rocky and Bullwinkle clip that we played last week. Uh, you're feeling a certain way, but you can't see your way out of, of what you see as some inevitable catastrophe heading our way. Inevitable being the key word here. And so maybe that's why you think we're all left. So, you know, I like your comment. You, you thought our dialogue was sarcastic and deadpan? Well, yeah, we were being sarcastic, and I think you could say we were being a bit deadpan, too. You really had me on the floor with that one. That was kind of funny. But yes, we are serious. We're always serious at the root, which in no way precludes our use of comedy, drama, rhetoric, or deadpan sarcasm from time to time. And partly because of that, I'm going to address every point and observation you raised in your letter, Robert, even your cure for corporate radio observation, because it all kind of fits into a, into a pattern, interesting picture. And I'd like to address them roughly in the order that they were raised, that Robert raised them. Forgive me if I sometimes slip back and forth from the first and third person when I for, refer to our writer, Robert, from time to time, because some of these comments are general, some are kind of just relating to his letter. Now, as to our views here on the show on capitalism being, quote, elevated beyond inspection, end quote. I guess as a first-time listener hearing our deadpan sarcasm last week, I can't, can't blame you for arriving at that conclusion. But it, as any of our regular long-time listeners know pretty well, we're always open to anyone's differing viewpoint. And we leave ourselves open to any sort of disagreement as long as it's sort of on the subject of the day when we're doing a show by way of our listeners being able to call in on the show as they do from time to time. And again, 519-661-3600. But in addition to promoting what we think is a social economic ideal in the positive and assertive sense, most of our shows actually deal with and confront the ideas with which we disagree. And in fact, that's exactly what we were doing last week when we, we reviewed that column by Christia Freeland last week. We pretty much disagreed with almost everything in her article. By the way, she's running for the Liberals in the Toronto area, I don't know. But, uh, and of course, we identified her as a conservative. It doesn't make any difference. It's, she still has the same views. But, you know, didn't her ideas qualify as being critical of our beyond inspection view of capitalism? And, uh, by the way, it was Christia Freeland who, quote, indicated that communism didn't work, end quote. I did not make that point, nor address it last week. In fact, I disagree with it profoundly. Communism is totally destructive in both its aims and its methods. And as such, it's always successful. How hard is it, how hard is it to be destructive? Uh, when you wrote that, quote, capitalism has never been achieved due to government intervention of socialist ideas and programs, um, which you were sort of saying that's how I was looking at it, you, that's kind of an illustration of that fact. And that's the consequence. You can't have capitalism and the socialist programs. They're incompatible with each other. You can have programs that help people out, but they can't be based on the idea of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Well, communism is not successful at is achieving what capitalism is successful at and always does do and always is successful at. Now, this is very important. 
Nobody's talking about some sort of perfect world here, except the collectivists, who lie to us openly, either out of ignorance or evil intentions or both, as we shall soon learn a little later on the show. Because there's nothing new in the world of, of affairs, of these kind of affairs, but what is new is the incredible but brief explosion of freedom and capitalism that mankind has experienced over, say, the past 200 years or so. And that was for the first time in recorded history on this planet. As Yaron Brook argued so eloquently, both on this show and on our online presentation of his speech on capitalism in Toronto, the evidence is incontrovertible. I mean, it's undeniable. One cannot possibly compare capitalism to any other socio-economic system and be honest or objective when saying one is no better than the other. In fact, even Christia Freeland in her article that we read, she said it's the most productive, most wealth-creating system we've ever run into, so why should we change it? And the word ideal, by the way, means and implies that which is achievable as, you know, as opposed to perfection, startlingly contrasted to the concept of perfect. Ayn Rand's book was titled Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, for that very reason. And she discussed at length why it's an ideal. There's no perfect society. You're not going to get rid of crime. You're not going to get rid of certain levels of poverty, but you can minimize them all. And we know what does that. As to the destructive influence of mankind, that very clearly manifests itself through all the various uh, collectivist programs, socialism, communism, and other collectivisms, and not through capitalism, because that's a system intolerant of the use of force or fraud, on definition alone. Uh, you know, pure capitalism, quote-unquote, as you call it, in this sense, means a market free of coercion. And to say that pure capitalism would leave us all effed is to say that, you know, consent should not be the moral standard of society. To say that there's no such thing as pure capitalism is like saying that you've never, ever engaged in a consensual economic transaction in your life, which, of course, is not true. But we'll be saying a lot more about this a little later in the show. The, the entire issue of capitalism versus all the other collectivisms, and it, it's an epistemological one. It's about the study of knowledge itself, and of the knowledge of knowledge itself. That's really what we do on this show. This show is really about epistemology uh, more than it is about any other single thing. And our writer Robert's concerns seem to be focused on capitalism in the sense of capitalism also being a business practice not a socio-economic system, which is also known as capitalism. For example, the fact that a business may fail in a capitalistic environment is precisely why the system of capitalism does not fail. It allows for failure because the economic system of capitalism is a profit and loss proposition, with the loss part to a particular business or industry being just as critical to the health of capitalism, the system, as is the profit motive to the capitalist within that system. These are two separate things. And, uh, well, that's a distinction in, that we'll be taking a closer look at when we return from the following parable. I don't understand why we didn't leave that son of a bitch in the pool of his own blood. We'd be dead. Can't get paid if you're dead. Can't get paid if you crawl away like a bitty little bug, neither. I've got a share of this job. 10% of nothing is... Let me do the math here. Nothing, and then nothing. Sir? We could just dump the cargo. No rotten way. 
We ain't had a job in weeks. I didn't sign on with this crew taking the sights. We need coin. Jane, your mouth is talking. You might want to look to that. I'm ready to stop talking. We're right, though. Last two jobs we had for week T. We got nothing saved. Taking on passengers won't help near enough. We don't get paid for this cargo. We don't have enough money to fuel the ship. Let alone keep her in repair. Should be dead in the water. So do you like Badger said? The border planets? I'm thinking white fall. Maybe talk to patients. Sir, we don't want to deal with patients again. Why not? She shot you. Well, yeah, she did a bit. Still. So we find somebody else. Horowitz. He can't afford it. Hold him, boys. They wouldn't touch it. You want me to go through the list? Capshaw's a brain blown. Rubik's dead. He's dead? Pure patients. Genuine A-grade foodstuffs. Protein, vitamins, immunization supplements. One of those will feed a family for a month. Longer, they don't like their kids too well. Yep, that's the stuff. So where's the rest? Bottom of first hill, you'll see where it's been dug. I reckon I will. Well then, I'd appreciate it. Y'all turn around and ride out first. Well, you see, there's a kind of hitch. Both made out on this deal. Don't complicate things. I got a rule. I never let go of money I don't have to. Which is maybe why I'm running this little world and you're still on that dinky old boat looking for scraps. So we? Uh, armor's dented. Well, you're right about this being a bad idea. Thanks for saying, sir. Don't you take another step! Yeah, I did a job. I got nothing but trouble since I did it, not to mention more than a few unkind words as regard to my character, so let me make this abundantly clear. I do the job. And then I get paid. Go run your little world. There you go. A purely capitalistic transaction taking place. <laughs> and who's the one he has to fight? The person who runs the world. The government, of course. If you're just tuning in, I've been addressing a feedback letter we got to the show from a first-time listener named Robert. And... That Robert made another economic point that, uh, or an e economic argument that I think misses part of the point here. And he wrote, he wrote, your comparison of two companies putting out the same product, one succeeding, one failing due to having better cost management would quickly disintegrate to both companies racing to the bottom of the minimum wage available to their employees to garner, garner maximum profit, etc. Now, this race to the bottom argument is a complete fallacy. It does not apply at all to the capitalistic system. It might within a, within a restricted socialist system. But the argument's enti entirely incorrect, and it's socialistic to the core. Evidence demonstrates that the market just doesn't work that way, even though that's how a lot of people look at it. 
and, and that's one of the many sophisms that we'll be dealing with later. The capitalistic ideal has nothing to do with what Robert has just described. It's possibly missed part of last week's show where I specifically brought up the distinction between business people who are called capitalists in all countries, even in the Soviet Union. And actually a capitalist is a bit different from a businessman in, in the fact that capitalists as business people are that group of business people who make their money from property. And of course property ownership is one of the arch enemies of communism in all non-capitalistic countries. So that, that's the real distinction there. And uh, which is, of course, is opposed to the philosophical or political concept of capitalism, uh, to which business interests object to as much as does labor. And that's it. that's the thing you got to realize. You know, business and labor are in cahoots on their anti-capitalist stance, but that's part of a misunderstanding on both of their parts. Both business and labor want unfair favors from government, and both of them get it under the current political system of plunder that we operate on. Business gets stimulus funds and monopolies, and labor gets uh, labor monopolies, both only made possible by government edict and not by any market or capitalist forces. And what's ironic about Robert's comment, I think, is that he himself doesn't see the alternative to capitalism as a workable solution, yet he can see and has described quite well the, the destructive cycle of socialism and communism. Now, connect the dots. The reason we're all effed is because of collectivism, not because of its absence, which, you know, you just merely dismiss in, in Robert's own elevated and beyond inspection way. And then he writes, the, the irony of your radio program being on public radio on a station whose moniker is your cure for corporate radio didn't go unnoticed. Well, you know, I'm not really sure what it was that didn't go unnoticed. I think I know what you're implying in some way, but just for the record... CHRW, as I understand it, is wholly owned and operated by the University of Western Ontario's, or Western University now, their student council, and is paid for through student fees. CHRW is in no way like the CBC or TVO or other government-funded broadcast media. If I got that right, Ed? Am I pretty much? Yeah, he says I'm pretty much right on that. Of course, like all broadcasters, public and private, the station is regulated through the CRTC, and has to comply with broadcast law and practice. Now, the real irony of our being here at CHRW, and Robert, Robert Vaughn, that is, and I have joked about this on more than one occasion, is that we've kind of realized this is almost the perfect place for doing something like Just Right and, and the spot that we're broadcasting from. Now, but there's no irony or contradiction between what we do or CHRW's moniker, your, your cure for corporate radio. You know, as I just described, I would suspect that most corporations, particularly those favored by government policy, subsidized by government, or given trade protections by government, would be totally opposed to capitalism in the sense that we discuss it on this show. They're not, they, don't, they talk, you know, competition and free enterprise, but they don't really believe it if somebody's going to do them a favor that removes that condition. Uh, you know, just before we were doing Just Right, myself personally, here on CHRW, I myself appeared regularly for almost 10 years on a corporate-owned and funded radio station on a weekly talk show that preceded this one, and which is actually, believe it or not, still available on our, our site, Just Right. And that was called Left, Right, and Center, hosted by Jim Chapman. 
And I can confirm there were a lot of issues we've talked about on this show here at CHRW that were kind of taboo on the private radio station. And it wasn't because of censorship in, uh, per se, but mostly because it might offend their advertisers or perhaps even the, the, the block of listeners that they've created who might tune out if certain topics were broached. Here at CHRW, even in the midst of all the CRTC rules and other self-imposed practices that we put on ourselves, we seem to have been able to express views and opinions that are truly alternative to what you find on quote-unquote corporate radio. There's a, you know, kind of a vacuum of intellectual discussion and debate on most commercial radio because really that's not what commercial radio is about, okay? I'm not criticizing it for not being that. And uh, nor should it be assumed to be about that. Some of the people in, in, in broadcast daily radio are doing something different from what we're doing here. And even here, everyone has their own quote-unquote uh, agendas and programs. What I got a kick out of, Robert, was, uh, and this is Robert, the writer now, your seething enjoyment of the show, as you put it, the last week, suggests that there's another kind of vacuum that seems to be filled somewhere and that you somehow sensed something in the nature of last week's show that might help fill that vacuum. And obviously it was something very different from what you've been used to hearing. Maybe you're not too sure if you can trust my usual co-host who isn't here today, Robert Vaughn, and myself. Are we serious? Aren't we just beating our heads against a wall of indifference and corruption, as you say? Well, I hope not our heads. I hope it's just our ideas. Now, on, on the one hand, the fact that Robert even wrote us leads me to believe that he himself maybe doesn't want to believe that we're all effed. Because why bother writing us if you really believe that? I mean, if we're all effed, why should it matter what Robert Vaughn and I have to say? So on, on the one hand, I don't think Robert really wants to believe that. But I wonder if, on the other hand, if he's just using that we're all effed argument to avoid or evade taking some kind of responsibility for choosing to do nothing about all of the corruption. Because then you have to know that there's a choice you make, you know. It's not a predetermined seal on your fate. So on the other hand, maybe that's what's really concerning Robert. Of course, all I've got to go is on what he's written us, and but that's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm seeing. So uh, thanks for writing again, Robert. Your comments inspired me to proceed with the next portion of our show today and, and broaden the issue to a lot of the concerns. You know, what you had to say is nothing new, and maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing. But the point is, it's people have gone through this before. People have observed the same things we're living through today. And this brought to mind on the theme of economics, um, a name I actually brought up last on last week's show, very briefly. Frederick Bastiat and his book, Economic Sophisms, which is a collection of essays explaining each of the sophisms we also easily fall prey to. But the really great parts of Bastiat's commentaries are his clear, concise explanations, not only on how, but why the corruption that our letter writer Robert refers to appears so systemic and uncorrectable. And the best part of Bastiat's commentaries are his observations on what actually works to change things for the better, not just in theory, but in practice. Problem is, you might not like his suggested remedy, or maybe you might even be cynical about that. So, you know, instead of cynical nihilism, which seems to be where a lot of people's heads and hearts are at, let's take heart. Not all is doomed. 
and know that the future always follows the direction set for it in the present. Now, that could be bad news, too, given what we see some people doing. But, you know, don't just look at the bad and corrupt, because as disturbing and, and as bad as it seems, not everybody is dishonest. Not everybody is corrupt, and not everybody is a crook. In fact, a lot of people don't even know that they're behaving in a corrupt manner, which is one of the reasons why Frederick Bastiat himself was a bit of an optimist on the future that he faced in the midst of 1800s France's own economic collapse. When we return on the other side of this break, let's find out what Bastiat had to say, and of course I'll add my own two bits to the equation along the way, but first here's another little parable from that great television series, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Once upon a time, there was a shabby little fisherman. Shabby, but neat. He lived with a shabby but neat wife on a shabby but neat houseboat in the bay. Every morning, the fisherman kissed his wife goodbye and set out for the sea. One morning, when he was fishing near some odd-looking rocks, he felt a furious tugging on his net. When he pulled it in, he could hardly believe his eyes. He had caught a mermaid, an honest-to-goodness live mermaid. Oh, joy! <laughs> What's so funny, fisherman? Young lady, you're going to make my fortune. People will pay anything to see a real live mermaid. But if you take me away from the sea, I'll die of a broken heart. Are you sure? It's the usual thing. Oh dear, that would never do. And the fisherman cut his net and freed the mermaid. <sighs> fisherman? Matter you catch your fins in the net? No, I've come to repay your kindness. Oh, that's all right. I promise to grant you any wish you may ask of me. Well... I sure do wish this net was mended. I'll do more than that. Hey! And suddenly, the fisherman was holding a beautiful brand new net. It, it's true. Oh, wait till I tell honey bun. That night, the fisherman told his wife all that had happened. Why, I can hardly believe it. Say, turtle dove, why don't you ask me something? Oh, I don't know. Go on. Well, I could use a new apron. And so, the next day, at the rocks... Mermaid, mermaid, in the sea, will you grant a wish to me? Little poem I just made up. What is your wish? Well, my wife would like a new apron. I'll do more than that. Go, she has her wish. When the fisherman arrived home, there stood his wife in a golden gown sprinkled with diamonds. Oh, it's everything I've ever wanted. But the next day, the fisherman noticed that his wife seemed moody and discontented. I feel so silly dressing up in a golden gown to do dishes in a houseboat. It's a nice houseboat. It's shabby. But neat. I don't care. You must ask the mermaid for a better boat. I don't think... But I do. Ask her for a boat. A big boat. So the fisherman returned to the rocks and requested a bigger boat for his wife. I'll do more than that. Go, she has her wish. When the fisherman returned home, he could believe his eyes. In place of the houseboat rode an enormous yacht with diamond-studded smokestacks, ruby-encrusted portholes, a sterling silver anchor chain, and on the bow, a twice-life-size figurehead of his wife. Well, she ought to be happy now. Milady instructs me to dress you for dinner. But I'm already dressed. This way, sir. Oh, isn't this just delightful? You're as rich as a queen. But if I could be as rich as a queen, why can't I be a queen? Oh, come on now. Go ask the mermaid. But I can't. Of course you can. Jeeves. Uh, yes, milady. And the fisherman suddenly found himself on his way. You rang. It's my wife again. She wants to be a queen. A queen? Silly, isn't it? 
I'll do more than that. Go. She has her wish. Well, this time, when the fisherman returned, the yacht was gone, and in its place was a solid gold royal barge. On the shore, he could see a fabulous palace. Oh, I'll bet Sugar Plum is tickled to death. Kneel, knave, for Her Highness, Queen Cleopatra. Cleopatra? Her name is Gertrude. Silence! I have another wish. Oh, no. If I can be a queen of the earth, why not queen of the universe? Tell the mermaid I want to be a goddess. No, I'm not going to... Well, if you insist, sweetie pie, mermaid, yoo-hoo. Again, fisherman? It's my wife. She wants to be... Oh, I just can't say it. A goddess? Uh Uh-huh. Nearly all your wishes have been heard. Have you no wish of your own? Why, yes. I just want her to be happy. I'll do more than that, fisherman. That was your last wish. Oh, I'm so glad. Go, your wife is happy. And when the fisherman returned home, there was his old houseboat, just as it used to be, and waving from the deck was his wife, just as she used to be. Tell me, honey bun... Are you happy? But of course, what more could I want? Not even a new apron? That one's pretty shabby. Shabby, but neat. The moral of this story is obvious, I think. Be content with what you have, or it takes more than wishes to do the dishes. Let's understand, Captain. We have been at war for 500 years. Under ordinary conditions, no civilization could withstand that. But we have reached a solution. Then the attack by Vendicar was theoretical. Oh, no. Quite real. An attack is mathematically launched. I lost my wife in the last attack. Our civilization lives. The people die. But our culture goes on. You mean to tell me your people just walk into a disintegration machine when they're told to? Don't you understand? Our duty now... Your duty doesn't include stepping into a disintegrator and disappearing. I'm afraid mine does, Captain. I, too, have been declared a casualty. I must report to a disintegrator by noon tomorrow. Is that all it means to you? To report and die? My life is as dear to me as yours is to you, Captain. But how can you stand... Don't you see? If I refuse to report and others refuse, then Vandekar would have no choice but to launch real weapons. We would have to do the same to defend ourselves. More than people would die then. A whole civilization would be destroyed. Surely you can see that ours is the better way. Oh. I don't see that at all. Do you realize what you have done? Yes, I do. I've given you back the horrors of war. The Vendikins will now assume that you've broken your agreement and that you're preparing to wage real war with real weapons. They'll want to do the same. Only the next attack they launch will do a lot more than just count up numbers on a computer. They'll destroy your cities, devastate your planet. You, of course, will want to retaliate. If I were you, I'd start making bombs. Yes, Councilman, you have a real war on your hands. You can either wage it with real weapons, 
or you might consider an alternative. And what might that be? Interesting episode. Kind of a dumb premise when you look at it on the surface, but it addressed a very real philosophical issue that occurs in society. I mean, there they were disintegrating people to preserve a culture, but what happens when the, when the culture itself begins to disintegrate and the people are left without a culture? And this is what happens to a lot of societies. And uh, one person who certainly addressed this back in the 1800s was Frederick Bastiat, who uh, wrote on uh, what he called, he wrote a book called um, Economic Sophisms. And in the chapter I'm looking at, it's very interesting, he identified four sophisms that were the key ones, and I call them sophisms choices, and they are war, slavery, theocracy, and monopoly. Now, Frederick Bastiat wrote all of this back in 1800s France. Originally in the French language, born June 29, 1801, Bastiat was only 14 years old when Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo and exiled to St. Helena. Bastiat was not just some obscure writer and commentator. He was a pretty big man in the France of his day. He was one of the chief organizers of the first French Free Trade Association at Bordeaux. He first rose to immediate prominence with the publication of his article in the journal Des Economistes, The Influence of French and English Tariffs on the Future of the Two Peoples. Now, my copy of his book, Economic Sophisms, is an English translation published by the Foundation for Economic Education back in 1964. And it's a collection of essays, each independently readable on their own. Some are as short as a single page or two. Others are a few pages long. The particular essay that caught my eye for this week was titled The Physiology of Plunder, being one of Bastiat's longer essays at 18 pages. So I had to shorten it down considerably for today's presentation, but I tried to get the essence out of it because it addressed so much of what I hear people talking about around me today, and in particular some of the concerns that were raised by our letter writer Robert in the first half of the show. Now, it's funny, when I hear the word plunder, I can't help but think of pirates with eye patches and peg legs sailing 17th century ships. But, of course, when Frederick Bastiat uses the word plunder, he was referring to something we're all very familiar with, though we rarely use that word. Maybe we should. Now, this is from his chapter, The Physiology of Plunder. And, and again, bear in mind that this was written back in the 1800s, not like last week after the, you know, during the by-election. And he says, there are only two ways of obtaining the means essential to the preservation, the adornment, and the improvement of life. And they are production and plunder. However well disposed or optimistic one may be, one is compelled to recognize that plunder is practiced in this world on too vast a scale to be able to ignore it. I go further, says Bastiat. What keeps the social order from improving is the constant endeavor of its members to live and prosper at one another's expense. I go still further, says Bastiat. When plunder has become a way of life for a group of men living together in a society, they will create for themselves in the course of time a legal system that authorizes it and a moral code that glorifies it. Wow. What's the legal system, social system, like you could call it socialism, wealth redistribution, a moral code that glorifies it? 
Well, that's altruism. That's exactly what it was all about. Bastiat then identifies what he calls the forms of plunder, plunder, identifying four of them as the more obvious and destructive. And again, those are war, slavery, theocracy, and monopoly. Plunder, explains Bastiat, always carries within itself the germ that ultimately kills it, end quote. But then, of course, the question to ask is, then what happens? Do we just repeat the cycle, or do we learn from that and move on? Unfortunately, we've been repeating the cycle on one, on one level, and we have learned a bit on the other. But unfortunately, we seem to be drifting a little bit back into the old cycle. Now, first, of course, plunder by war. He went on at, at length on this, but it, it was a very different thing. And he says the first form of plunder is war. Among savages, the conqueror kills the conquered in order to acquire hunting rights that, if not contestable, are at least uncontested. And this is a very basic form of plunder that most people recognize, and you don't really have to explain to, to a lot of people what the problem with war is. Now, plunder by slavery... And Bastiat writes, quote, When a man learns that labor can make the earth fruitful, he arranges to share with his brother on the following terms. Yours the toil, mine the harvest. Free labor is essentially progressive, whereas slave labor is necessarily static. Free labor employed in the cultivation of sugar will lead to a continual reduction in its price. There's a race to the bottom. The prices go down. The slave will become proportionately less profitable to his master. Slavery would have collapsed of its own weight long ago in America if European laws had not kept the price of sugar artificially high. Okay, so there's one of the big issues behind slavery in America was the artificially propped up prices of sugar in Europe. Isn't that an interesting connection? Then there's plunder by theocratic fraud, as Bastiat terms it. Fraud, he says, consists in the misuse of the intellect. Fraud consists of inducing men to give one actual services in the form of food, clothing, luxuries, prestige, influence, and power in exchange for fictitious services. If I tell a man, I'm going to render you an immediate service, I am obliged to keep my word. Otherwise, this man would soon know what to expect, and my fraud would be quickly unmasked. But suppose I say to him, In exchange for services from you, I shall confer immense services upon you, not in this world, but in the next. If this man believes me, he is at my mercy. With designs of this sort, reason would be my most dangerous enemy. I should forbid the use of reason itself. I should render all questions related to it taboo, as the savages say. To answer them, to ask them, even to think of them, would be an unpardonable crime. It would not be amiss for me to satisfy some of the real needs of my people, especially if by doing so I were able to increase my influence and authority. For instance, men have a great need for education and a great need for morality, and I should make myself the source of both. When things have reached such a point, these people would evidently belong to me more than if they were my slaves. The slave curses his chains. My people would bless theirs. Public opinion alone can knock down such an edifice of inequity, writes Bastiat. But where is it to begin if every stone is tabooed? This must be the work of time and the printing press, he concludes. 
And then he turns to plunder my, by monopoly. And he writes, next comes the misuse of government services. An immense field for plunder, so immense that we can only glance at it, he says. And he turns to the need for one legitimate government service, namely the need for security. He writes, people agree to tax themselves in order to pay those who perform the service of seeing to the common security. This arrangement in no way conflicts with the principle of exchange as formulated in political economy. Do this for me and I'll do that for you. The essence of the transaction is the same. Only the method of payment is different, but this fact is very important. Now, it is a tendency of all men to exaggerate the services that they render and to minimize the services they receive. And chaos would reign if we did not have, in private transactions, the assurance of a negotiated price. Yet this assurance is completely lacking in our transactions with government. Of course, you don't negotiate a price with government. If the nation is open-handed, and that means very generous, let's say, the government offers to cure all the ills of mankind. It promises, and this sounds like a recent by-election, it promises to restore commerce, make agricultural prosperous, expand industry, encourage arts and letters, wipe out poverty, etc., etc. All that is needed is to create some new government agency and to pay a few more bureaucrats. In a word... The tactic consists in initiating in the guise of actual services what are nothing but restrictions. Thereafter, the nation pays not for being served, but for being disserved. And isn't that what our health care service is? It's a restriction on health care service. <laughs> you can't buy it privately. You can't get private health care insurance. You can't seek alternatives. It's a single-payer system. And that's what they call offering a service, is by denying you services other people would offer you. And he writes, governments assuming gigantic proportions end by absorbing half of the national income. The people are astonished to find that while they hear of wonderful inventions that are to multiply goods without end, they're working as hard as ever and are still no better off than before. Now remember, this was written in the 1800s, not last week in the National Post, because this is pretty much where we are at today. And he continues, the trouble is that while the government has been acting with so much ability, the people have shown practically none. Thus, when called upon to choose those who are to be entrusted with the powers of government, who do they choose? Government officials. <laughs> or those officially for government, I guess. Uh, again, remember, this was written in the 1800s. In the meantime, he writes, things go from bad to worse. And at last, people open their eyes. Not to the remedy or they have not yet progressed to that point, but to the evil. And I think what Bastiat just said there, in many ways, that's the point we're just approaching today in North America, and certainly in Ontario. The only a minority has had their eyes open so far in the process, but it's going to happen more because it's personal suffering that causes it. And this goes on, writes Bastiat, until the people learn to recognize and defend their true interests. Thus, we always reach the same conclusion. The only remedy is in the progressive enlightenment of public opinion. And he rounds up by saying, The true and just rule for mankind is the voluntary exchange of service for service. Plunder consists in prohibiting, by force or fraud, freedom of exchange, in order to receive a service without rendering one in return. Forcible plunder is affected by waiting until a man has produced something and then taking it from him by violence. 
it is the specifically or, or sorry it is specifically forbidden by the commandment thou shalt not steal when practiced by one individual on another it is called theft and it is punishable by imprisonment when practiced by one nation on another it is called conquest and leads to glory and i would add when practiced by a government against its citizens. It's called socialism, protectionism, wealth redistribution, income equity, and a host of rationalizations, all meaning the same thing, plunder. And he writes, Woe to the people that cannot limit the sphere of action of the state. Freedom, private enterprise, wealth, happiness, independence, personal dignity, all vanish. Now, I look at it this way. Plunder, theft, stolen property, etc., are based on a self-contradiction which illustrates exactly why honesty, trust, and ownership are necessary ingredients not only of wealth creation, but of values themselves. In fact, concludes Bastiat, there comes a time when the progressively accelerating destruction of wealth goes so far that the plunderer is poorer than he would have been if he had remained honest. Such is the case when a war costs a nation more than the booty is worth when a master pays more for slave labor than for free labor, when a theocracy has so stupefied the people and so sapped their energies that it can no longer exact anything from them, when a monopoly increases its efforts to absorb in proportion as there is less to absorb, just as it takes more effort to milk a cow as the udder becomes empty. In the course of time, thanks to so genius and ingenious a mechanism as custom, Many people become plunderers without knowing it and without intending it. Monopolies of this kind are engendered by fraud and nourished on error. They flourish in the darkness of ignorance and vanish only in the light of knowledge. Plunderers conform to the Malthusian law. They multiply with the means of existence. And the means of existence of knaves is the credulity of their dupes. Seek as one will. There is no substitute for an informed and enlightened public opinion. It is the only remedy. End quote. And this is the conclusion he runs into every time. And with that repeated lesson by Bastiat that enlightened public opinion is the only remedy, we'll take a brief break now in the form of a couple of tales that reflect upon some of what Bastiat had to say. And then we'll wrap up on the other side. Francis Seven, step forward between the columns. You're still the same, Francis Seven. We're different. You're looking at old age. How can anyone be old? Everyone goes to the carousel at 30. No, not everyone. Not the elders who control the city of domes. Come closer. Haven't you ever wondered how the city functioned? How it's run? No, everything... Everything is. It is because we keep it so. For 30 years, you all lead lives of pleasure. There's no need for decisions, for questions. Your every desire is gratified. Your food, your clothing, all there for the taking. Yet, none of you work a great deal for any of these things. Doesn't that strike you as strange? Sandman, don't question the order of things. Well learned, Francis Seven. You see, we're a contained society. The city of domes can only support a finite number of people. Therefore, an appropriate age had to be determined for the end of life to accommodate the newly born. There's no renewal? We're not born again? Life after death, born again. 
Oh, it's a nice homey little place you have here, Mr. Berber. Don't you think my office had been better? Oh, I don't live here. This is my hideout. I'm sorry to put you through all this, but I'm uh, being followed. Someone already knows the worst. I'm so afraid. Now, easy, easy. Take it from the beginning. This store where I work, you know, it's a very, very big place, lots and lots of money, and I got to thinking about that. I'm chief clerk in accounting, you know, and all that lovely currency from every department, all those payments from the credit office, all that money in my hands, and I figured out a way, a foolproof way. Hold it. Are you asking us to help you rob that store? Oh, no, no, no. I already did that. I want to hire you to put it back. Absolutely not. We've taken on some crazy jobs, but this is the weirdest note. Of course we'll help you, Mr. Bird. We'll help him to the nearest lawyer, that's all. You can plead insanity. <laughs> Sam's joking. We'll put your money back for you. Honey, we'd have to perform a burglary in reverse. Well, that's the best way, isn't it? For honest people like us. Burglar alarms, night watchmen, policemen. I can see us now telling the judge, Judge, we're putting the money back in the safe. <laughs> He'd break up. That's the part that appeals to me. We were the first to ever unrob a safe. Now tell me all about it. Well, it all started as a sort of little game, like doing a puzzle, really. Uh, you see, at the end of each day, I count the money and bag it and deliver it to the big safe in the store manager's office. And I began to play this harmless little game. Of course you did. What game? Well, in the game, I switched dummy bundles of currency for the real thing on Monday and Tuesday. And then I took all that lovely money and I went to live with a beautiful native girl on Bora Bora. Miss the plane? I found out that I'm honest. There, there. Could happen to anybody. <laughs> One of the funnier episodes of Honey West that was done back in the 1960s. See, honesty breaks out from time to time. And most people, I think, are honest when they're in an environment that allows them to be so. We were looking at some of the economic sophisms that Frederick Bastiat was uh, discussing back in the 1800s before the break. And just a couple more to, to conclude the show with. Got about two minutes left here. And, you know, these same mythologies continue to repeat themselves, generation after generation, and perhaps that's why we say that history repeats itself, especially when it's not taught in the proper context in our schools. And I think that's what's really missing and why we tend to repeat the same lessons, to say nothing of the people who have a direct interest in our not knowing these things. Uh, you know, People have always been afraid of abundance and have always welcomed scarcity in their life, believe it or not. And Frederick Bastiat says, you know, he says, which is preferable for man in society, abundance or scarcity? What, people may explain, exclaim? How can there be any question about it? Has anyone ever suggested, or is it possible to maintain that scarcity is the basis of man's well-being? Yes, this has been suggested. Yes, this has been maintained and is maintained every day. And I do not hesitate to say that the theory of scarcity is by far the most popular of all theories, he says. Do we not hear it said every day? Foreigners are going to flood us with their products. Thus, 
people fear abundance. Hear that all the time here in the local market, too. You hear people complaining about, oh, cross-border shopping, bringing goods in from other countries. Like, we should be afraid of wealth. Like, we should be afraid of the goods that we're buying. It's pretty insane, really. And, of course, uh, the only other issue is um, he's talking about how people use metaphors all the time. You know, things like... uh, the question is actually, yes, a celebrated modern philosopher has added to the categories of Aristotle the sophism that consists in begging the question by the use of a single word. He cites several examples of it and could have added tributary to, a, tributary to his list. The question actually at issue here is whether purchases made abroad are advantageous or harmful. They are harmful, you say? Why? Because they make us tributaries to foreigners. How did this deceptive figure of speech come to be introduced into, into the rhetoric of the monopolists? Money leaves the country to satisfy the greed of a victorious enemy. Money also leaves the country to pay for imports. These two events are treated as analogous by taking into account only the respects in which they resemble each other and disregarding those in which they differ. And of course that differing point is one's voluntary the other is not. And that's why history keeps repeating itself. Just a few of the many sophisms we'll be looking at over the next few shows during the summer. And that's it for this week. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And of course, be right back here. To color, to black and white. Under the everything will be alright. Oh, uh, here's a list of things I want you to do the moment that your raft docks. I'll get to them just as soon as I can, Mr. Howe. Yes, yeah, so I think you'll find the list self-explanatory. These are the names of the stocks, you see. The letter S opposite means sell, B means buy, M means merge, and H means... wonder what H means. H is for Howell, dear. It's your notepaper. Well, yes, yes, of course. H, that's me. <laughs> you too. But you folks don't understand. We'll be kept busy when we land just arranging a rescue party. Oh, Captain, speaking of parties, will you please get in touch with Mrs. Van Hampton? You see, Mr. Howell and I promised to attend her party, and we weren't able to. What with getting shipwrecked and everything. Well, I'm sorry, folks, but I can't worry about the stock market and parties. We've got a lot of things to do first. Lobby, there's only one way to protect our interests. I will have to go along on the raft. Uh, Gilligan, uh, bring my luggage. Yes, sir. Never mind, Gilligan. Just keep loading the supplies on board. Yes, sir. Mr. Howell, you don't know what it's like out there in the ocean. You may be bitten by a shark. A shark bite a howl? <laughs> he wouldn't dare. <laughs> well, besides, we haven't got room enough for your luggage. Oh, well, that's different. If I can't go first class, I won't go at all. <laughs> Come on, Bobby. Even tourists are crowded. <laughs>